This Week in Retronauts, Tales of a Time Too Strange to Imagine. seem hard to believe in this day and age where Konami has essentially cut itself free of all associations with video games, once upon a time, Konami published so many video games that they had to create a shell corporation to get them all onto the marketplace. To properly understand the nature of Ultra Games, the dummy corporation Konami established during the NES era, you need to understand the history of the Nintendo Entertainment System, or rather, its prehistory. We've talked on Retronauts about the Atari crash of 1982 and 83 and how it gutted the young U.S. console industry. We've also talked about how it really only affected the U.S., meant that the U.K. and Japan in particular were just finding their respective strides right around the time that Warner Communications backpedaled as hard as they could from their stake in Atari. Nintendo launched their first console, the Famicom, in Japan just months after Atari's market cratered. And that wasn't nearly enough time for Nintendo to learn from their American counterparts' mistakes. The Famicom got off to a slow start, and once it took off, its software library absolutely exploded with hundreds of games of wildly varying quality, and with no regulation. The early years of the Famicom were, quite frankly, completely dreadful. Only the free market provided quality control, and honestly it's hard to say why Famicom didn't go the way of the 2600, buried under a deluge of mediocre software. Maybe it was the infamous Japanese bubble economy of the 80s. Where Atari was done in in part by the Reagan recession, Nintendo's rise coincided with that of the Japanese market. Japanese consumers had money to burn. It also probably helped that the gaming specialist press had more traction thanks to Japan's newsstand culture too. Gamers could more easily find guidance from magazines to know which games were good and which they should avoid. But when it came time for Nintendo to launch the Famicom in America, they'd had a chance to parse what had become known in Japan as the Atari Shock. It also had time to take stock of the worst problems that had settled in around the Famicom market, where even the Japanese gaming press had begun to grow gloomy about the sheer quantities of garbage releases for the system. It was too late for Nintendo to take full corrective action in its home market without causing ill will among consumers and publishers. So they looked to their overseas console markets, still nothing more than mere germs of possibility, as a chance to take some prophylactic measures against a second US console crash. Nintendo's attempts to rein things in alienated some of the platform's most ardent developers, most notably Namco, who ended up going rogue when Nintendo tried to revise the terms of their Famicom publishing contract. There's a reason why a good chunk of Tengen's unlicensed NES games came from Namco. With the US launch of the NES, Nintendo first began to demonstrate its knack for iron-fisted control and an almost patriarchal oversight of its platforms. The freewheeling days of the Famicom boom were gone. Third parties had to become official licensees in order to publish on NES. Licenses were enforced with a copyright-based lockout system that was built directly into the NES hardware, whose reconfiguration from its original Japanese format was more than merely cosmetic. Along with its new shell and fancy new Zero Force insertion slot, the NES also received a hardware lockout system called the 10NES, which prevented games that lacked the proper authorization code from booting. Nintendo inserted the security code into each game themselves, a practice made possible by the fact that Nintendo took all NES game manufacturing in-house. 
where Famicom licensees were allowed to produce their own games, anyone producing software for NES had to use Nintendo's facilities. This didn't simply mean that Americans missed out on all the funky-shaped Famicom carts that Japan enjoyed in a rainbow of colors, it also meant Nintendo exerted absolute control over quantities and timing of game releases. And with that control, according to David Sheff's book Game Over, came the opportunity for Nintendo to throttle its most prolific publishers. The law came down from on high. No NES publisher could release more than five games per year. While this had the upside of preventing any one studio from flooding the market with low-quality trash, it also hobbled the handful of publishers who produced great games in large numbers. One such publisher was Konami, the company that gave us classics like Gradius, Castlevania, and The Goonies 2. In Japan, Konami was downright prolific, churning out as many as a dozen Famicom games of good to great quality per year. In America, though, they had to pick and choose their releases, meaning we missed out on a number of intriguing games. Bad enough that we didn't get optimal versions of Konami releases, since Nintendo wouldn't let them manufacture their powerful custom chips in the US, we didn't get certain games at all. And so Konami did the only thing it reasonably could. It created a separate company entirely for the sake of gaming Nintendo's system. In Europe, the spin-off is called Palcom, but Americans knew it as Ultra Games. The effect of this spin-off was that we could enjoy as many as 10 Konami releases per year instead of 5. And indeed, Konami, or rather Ultra, made full use of its extra capacity in both 1989 and 1990, the peak years of the NES in America. Konami had more than maxed out its 5-game NES allocation almost immediately. The company made its US debut in December of 1986 with Gradius, and they actually exceeded their 5-title limit in 1987 with Russian Attack, Track and Field, Castlevania Double Dribble, Stinger, The Goonies 2, and Top Gun. All of these were among the best releases the NES had to offer that year, so it's little wonder that Nintendo let them fudge the rules a bit. And small wonder too that Nintendo looked the other way when they set up an empty label to allow them to publish even more. No one had anything to gain by keeping the likes of Contra or Simon's Quest from seeing the light of day in America. Not Nintendo, not Konami, and certainly not consumers. And so Ultra made its debut in the summer of 1988 with the release of Metal Gear. I don't know whether or not that was a meaningful choice by design, but it certainly turned out that way. Ultra quickly became a sort of boutique label for Konami titles that seemed more heavily geared towards specific American tastes. It literally became the company's American label. For Americans, in America, often by Americans. Metal Gear, of course, became a much larger hit in the US than in Japan, enough so that America exclusively received the first ever Metal Gear sequel. That was Snake's Revenge, published in 1990 by Ultra. Likewise, Ultra would host Konami's conversions of American arcade and computer games, such as Qbert, Defender of the Crown, and Sid Meier's Pirates. Ultra brought us Konami's takes on popular American licenses too, such as Star Trek, and of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And yes, some of the company's less prestigious titles found a home at Ultra too. Games like Quarth and Base Wars might not have been disastrous, but they lacked the bleeding-edge appeal of Castlevania 3 and Super C. The Konami's silver label branding was reserved for the best of the best, the company's top Japanese-developed releases. Ultra was for games that didn't quite make the cut. Even Metal Gear, legendary as it may be, suffered from technical shortcomings in its NES conversion. The Ultra label was only active for a little more than four years. The last product released under the Ultra label was the NES conversion of Pirates. And once Nintendo loosened up its restrictions during the Super NES era, the need for Ultra to exist disappeared, as did Ultra. In a sense, Ultra kind of proved Nintendo right. Those NES quotas existed to prevent a glut of mediocre games from flooding the market. Konami slipped past that limitation and promptly went about making mediocre games. 
granted a subpar Konami NES game, was still easily in the upper 30% of all NES releases, and any NES fan almost certainly has a soft spot for at least one Ultra title. These days, though, the Ultra name stands as a curious relic of a bygone era of the industry's growth, like an empty shell left behind by a molding cicada. For Retronauts, I'm Jeremy Parrish. Check out more episodes of regular Retronauts and Retronauts Micro on retronauts.com and usgamer.net. You can find us on social media as Retronauts, and I write for various other venues like Retro Magazine and Game Boy World. Thanks for listening, and check back next week for another full episode.